All right, so on Wednesday, we were talking about, we were finishing off the section on, on the problem of food, at chapters 8, 9, and 10. And Paul finally, after several chapters, finally tells them the answer to the question. And he gives two different scenarios. One is his eating in a temple. And he says, that is a strict don't do. And it makes a lot of sense because in chapter 11, he's talking about the Lord's Supper. Okay, if the Lord's Supper, if eating and drinking in that case is showing your fidelity to Christ, well then doing eating and drinking in a temple to an idol god would, would be exactly the opposite of that, right? So that, that one makes sense. But then he gives in a private meal, he says, well, you know, that's a, that depends on the situation. And that depends on, I remember what Ben Witherington said, it's more on the venue than the menu in that case. So if the, he says, don't raise these, this question for conscience sake, not for your conscience, but actually for their conscience, and that would change the situation. In that. He also talks about the Jews' example. He says, you need to go back and see their example. And the, that, we didn't, really have a, we didn't have a lot of talk about that, but if you think about it, the Jews from the beginning had an issue with idolatry. And Paul does mention idolatry, so that, that actually fits quite nicely. In fact, there's a book written by a couple of Jewish scholars, and I haven't read it. I, I have it, but I haven't read it yet. But one of the things in the, in the intro is that they say that the entire Old Testament is focused on an argument against idolatry. And I actually think that makes a lot of sense. All that issues, the issues that had could be tucked up under that. I think it's probably true. Also, I was going to point, point a clarification. Erica asked about the quotation of Psalm 24, and I couldn't remember if it was, if the Psalms were the most quoted or the second most quoted book in 1 Corinthians. It's actually the second most quoted book, and then I forgot that the author of this study guide actually put a chart in the back, put a little thing in there, so uh, I looked at it, I'm like, oh yeah, that's right, it was the second most quoted one. I did want to talk about that in the review, because I, I find it a little bit unusual or unexpected to me that the New Testament quotes the Psalms so much, given that the Psalms are poetry. So I kind of wanted to work through that. It's like, why would something that's poetry be quoted the way that it is? Which is, like I said, it, it's not intuitive to me. All right, I think that's everything I wanted to mention. Oh, for, I want to say it now, because otherwise I'm going to forget to the end. On Wednesday, we're going to do chapter 11. So I'll send, we'll just be aware that's the plan. And I think that's everything I want to say. Micah, you want to leave some prayer? So there's a question we didn't get to. Most of what we're going to talk about today, we're going to talk about the con- continue the conversation we started on Wednesday about the conscience. 
Uh, mostly this is overflow because of some stuff we just didn't get to. I wanted to mention this question. And usually I ask the questions, but I don't answer them. I'm going, to, I'm going to try to answer this one. This is, why would knowing that the food was sacrificed first to idols change the situation? Remember, there's, there's two. This is in the second situation where you're in a, a meal with somebody. It's not in an idol temple. It's not in a pagan temple. And all of a sudden, this changes the situation. So what I did is I tried to craft a scenario that's a more modern-day version of this problem. So it's difficult. So we don't really have this issue anymore, which is a good thing, but it makes it a little bit hard to understand what's going on here. And Bob Surratt pointed out that the, you got to remember this is a meal with a non-Christian. And you're actually worried about their conscience. Which, this is actually a relevant point. So here's a, I just made up a, a modern day scenario that I think fits in many ways what Paul's saying here. So here's the background. Let's just say you have a steakhouse. And the steakhouse is actually part of a chain. And if you look at the parent company of the steakhouse, you'll find that one of the things it does is it gives some money, some of its proceeds, to this place called the Coexist Foundation. Now, if you look up this foundation, what you find out is that all it does is it just gives the money out to local charities. Well, okay, there's no sin in that, right? So what's the problem? Well, listen to the title, the Coexist Foundation. Well, if you go to their website, they say that they support these local charities as a way to get people to realize that all religions are equally true. Now, as a Christian, you'd have an issue with that. Okay, so, here's, I'm going to give you two scenarios. Scenario one. You go into that steakhouse, and your non-Christian friend sees you go in. What would they reasonably think? I'd say that they just reasonably think you like steak. That's it. Right, so I, I don't really see an issue, especially when you go in there, and you sit down, you pray to God, and you thank him for that meal. Okay, you, you thank him he made cows out of steak. What's the problem? Okay, that, so I don't think there's an issue there. I, I don't, you know, I highly doubt this person's going through their financial records to figure out where this money went, put all the things together. That's scenario one. Here's scenario two. It's the same steakhouse, but they put this obnoxiously large banner on the front that, that you just cannot ignore. And it says, we support the Coexist Foundation, so by coming here, some of the proceeds will go to support this this foundation that believes that all religions are equally true. Your non-Christian friend sees you walk into that. See, in that case, I think the situation is a little bit different because they might reasonably come to the conclusion, like, oh, wait, I, my, my friend here actually believes that all religions are equally true, so the fact that I'm a, you know, whatever, is okay, even though they're a Christian. See, that, I think that's where it shifts a little bit. Notice here, though, that the, the sensitivity is actually sensitivity to your non-believer friend who might misinterpret what's going on here. Less to do with your own, because you know that this is, these, other, these other religions are not equally true. But he doesn't necessarily know. So I think that that's the best I could do to try to make something that's a little bit more like a modern-day version of that particular scenario. Does that make sense, or do you have any thoughts about that? Bob, do you think that did that fit? Okay. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about, well, I want to talk about the conscience. Let's, let's open with this, which is that how, does, how do you think Paul defines the conscience, particularly in chapters 8 through 10? Or you can bring up other texts that helps us to understand what he means by that. What, what are your thoughts on that?
Yes. I think in the context, it seems to me like in the context of the scripture in Corinthians, that when he's discussing conscience, he is discussing uh, awareness of other people and trying to be all that you can be as a Christ follower to bring other people to Christ. It's not that it's not an in and out, you know, eating right out of your conscious and then you go back and don't eat, you know, but it's a it's a to bring awareness to people's thinking. Your conscious is your thinking. And it's a to bring awareness to your thinking that you are the light of the world. And that you are setting the standards for Christ on this earth. And so you don't want to do anything that violates a non-believer's conscience in that they think you're doing wrong. Yeah, it is actually it is a lot focused on how that works with other people when it kind of crosses. I think you're right about that. He does actually in chapter eight say that it could be an issue even with believers per se, but it still does seem where it's like crossing. It's not necessarily worrying about our own conscience against ourselves. He seems to be worried about when it crosses other people. Yes, John. I found it interesting how he refers to the weak conscience. It's almost like a moral sound. That's the way it was kind of in the original Greek, but I'm like you're more of a sick thing like, okay, do I have like a strong conscience or a weak conscience and you know, like not being sure about things or like feeling like things are wrong when they aren't is like somehow a weak conscience. <laughs> I thought about that too because I always took it as weak meaning lower in emotional intensity. And the more I read that through, I said, I don't think that's actually what he's saying here because it seems to be the, the person thinks that they're right on it. Right? I, I liked how you said that you used the word thinking. And I think that's actually the right way to think about this. And so then I started thinking, well, okay, if it's not saying that it's lower in emotional intensity, per se. What is it saying? And I think he might be using it's weak in knowledge. They just don't actually know that this is... In chapter 8, he's saying here, we know that... that well, he starts off with that thing, so we all have knowledge. He later says, well, okay, we don't all have knowledge in this case. We know that it's not really a problem, but it turns out not everybody knows that. So I think, it's, I think the weak in knowledge fits, and also fits with chapter 10, where the non-Christian doesn't understand, they, they don't hold the same view. So that's, that, that's what I think makes it most sense. Uh, yes, Bob? In chapters 8 through 10, all of the emphasis is on the other person and not your own conscience. The only time it's mentioned about your own is in a negative sense. This is kind of unlike what he does in Romans, where he talks about his own conscience as, as a uh, witness. With, which is written. So that's a completely different context. So it is interesting that he uses that word in different senses in different places. Yeah, good point. Yeah, this is true. Uh, yes, Russ. So Paul seems to think that it's a useful guide, but it's not the only guide. I started looking at the first verses and talked about Surprised how many of the words that most specifically from Paul, uh, First Corinthians, Romans, also First and Second Timothy, but uh, First Corinthians four four says 
I agree, and it's I, so I looked through every instance of the word conscience in the New Testament, and then studied them, put them in a list. First uh, Corinthians, if I remember right, had the most the most the most instances of the word conscience. Yeah, it was actually by a lot, chapters eight through ten, and then second being Hebrews had it. But yeah, it, it's not a perfect guide. Actually, it was Craig had said something about how. You, he mentioned it was like a tutor. He said, but it's a tutor where we have to check its credentials. And I, I like that approach, right? It's, it's useful, but we have to make sure that it's actually trained in a certain sense accordingly. Yeah, and I, I think that one of the things about this that is a little bit tricky is that the word, the English word for conscience is a little bit different than the Greek word for conscience. And this is what can, what can hang us up. So Craig, you had a comment? Yeah, uh, first you Yeah, and this is where thinking of the word in the context of knowledge, I think, makes a lot more sense, actually. Because, and this is where I was having several conversations last in, or I was having some conversations some, a while ago, and I, people were talking to me about what do you do in those cases where you know something is right, but for some reason it feels a little weird about it. Like, and the way they put it was, what about when you know something is right, but your conscience tells you it's wrong. So here's the problem. When the Greek word, they would use the word for the entire thing, including knowledge. And so, and I looked this up. I was like, here's the English word. I looked, the first lexicon, I looked it up. Notice something here. It says, of the word conscience, it makes you feel guilty about bad things. 
Well, look it up in the Greek. And this is from BDAG, which is the, the lexicons usually used by translators. And it says, number one, an awareness of information about something. Right? This is where Micah's prayer fit perfectly because he mentioned knowledge, he mentioned teaching, he mentioned God's word. Right? This is, so you look at that, awareness of information. It's not actually focusing on the, on the emotional side. Number two is that the inward faculty of distinguishing between right and wrong. Now, I would say that probably could include the emotional aspect of it, but it's bigger than just the emotional aspect. And then three, attentiveness to obligation. Again, attentiveness, like you know something. And if you look it up, I'd say this definition number two is the one that fits most in chapter 10. Yes. Uh, nine, nine. The Apostle Paul said, all that I did, killing the Christians, forwarding the Jewish religion, I did in good conscience. So he, he did everything that he did with a good conscience saying he was doing the right thing. So he did it without the appropriate knowledge. So it's all a matter of where, what state your conscience is in. Is it in, is it ever said the sear, the harden, you know, whatever state, if, you're, if your conscious is in a good state and you want to do the right thing, then you'll fight. But if it's not, you'll do the things that you do with a good conscience. Right, it's, that's the thing about it. The idea of beliefs here is that they may not feel anything's wrong with it. Like the, in chapter 10, the person who mentions to you is like, oh, this meat was sacrificed to idol. Their conscience doesn't likely have any issues if you mean the emotional aspect. They're totally fine with it. That might be why they're mentioning it. That doesn't mean that it's been trained properly. Uh, yes? So I want to hear what is it you need to talk about this on Wednesday already, but um, I don't try to put this exactly in the words. But conscience, as I read through this, is an individual thing, right? We, we, I have a conscience. You have a conscience. Typically, we don't see a group conscience. I mean, there might, we might be able to argue that there is one, but I think conscience is a very individual thing. I find it interesting to hear that Paul, when he's talking about conscience, he's talking about, even though it's an individual thing, it can be affected by others and what others do or what others say. So our conscience, even though it's individual and I'm in control of it, it can be affected by someone else. And the sin comes in where I cause someone to violate their conscience. Not that what they do is sinful, but causing them to violate their individual conscience. And so I think it's interesting to see a play between the individuality, we each have one, and we're in control of it, but yet it can be affected and it can be influenced by outside forces or outside sources. And that's where this rub comes in that if, if I cause or if I'm the problem again or for someone else to violate their own yeah, I, I was trying to think if there's any of them, any uses of that term where it could be like a group conscience, and I don't remember any of them that do. The closest one I could think of would be 2 Corinthians 4.2, where Paul's describing the apostles' work, and he says to, quote, commend ourselves to everyone's conscience before God, but I still kind of think that's probably individualistic. He's just saying it, the plural meaning, the plural of individuals. So I, yeah, I think you're probably right. 
Any other comments or questions on that, Brian? Yeah, and this is why I think it's really important to distinguish between that emotional concept, the offense, if you will, in that case, and the knowledge aspect, because in that case, Paul would be telling you, you should offend their emotional sense of conscience. Even, so it's not you're doing it because that's what they, you, you want to avoid offending. In this case, you, want to, you actually have to offend it to teach them a better way forward. Yes. Makes this, a, this is what makes it tricky, right? It goes back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 because you have people who hold different views on this thing. And he said it's not a sin, kind of like I like to think your one cup example is a pretty good one. It's not a sin to only have a single cup. Probably going to get sick more often, but it's not a sin. Okay, so and that's one of those cases where in, it's kind of like 1 Corinthians 8, where if you, whether you eat or not eat itself is not, morally, it's not a problem or is a problem other than when you start factoring in what you could do to other people. Yes, Josh. And that's something that none of us want to do. 
Right, and so that, that's a good point, because when you think of it, then you have to ask a question, which is, if it's not a sin in either scenario, why would it be a sin just because they think that it's a sin? And, and I think the way you put it is good, because it'd be a sin because it shows a lack of fidelity to Christ in a certain sense. Think of it this way. Let's say I, I see somebody's wallet. I open it up, and I, I think it's my neighbor's wallet, so I, I quickly open it up, and I take the cash out, and I stuff it in my pocket. Then I look at, when I open it up, after I've taken the cash, I stick it in my pocket, I look at it, and I realize my ID is in it. It's my wallet. Did I sin? Well, here's the thing. According to the law, I didn't, okay, because it's my wallet. But actually, it, it shows you something about something that is deeper wrong in my heart that I thought I would just open it up and just take cash. That's actually where the sin is. So in a certain sense, the sin wasn't just in the action. The sin was that something is wrong with my, my faithfulness and my lack of love for my neighbor. That's actually where the, love, where the sin winds up being. And so drawing this distinction between the emotional aspect and the knowledge aspect is important too because there are people who do not have a functional, I'm going to use the word conscious here, but I mean the emotional conscious. I'm going to show you a video. And it's from, it's from a psychopath. Now, my psychopath, I mean, like, clinically, he's a psychopath. He actually does not have a functional conscience. He tried to kill his father, and he says he does not feel remorse for it. Now, he actually has the knowledge of guilt. He doesn't have the feeling of guilt because he's incapable of feeling it. So, in this conversation, you're forced to draw a distinction between the emotional aspect and the knowledge aspect of it. Hopefully this will work. Then we talk about how a psychopath is not going to be susceptible to guilt feelings. Uh, that said, uh, how then would a psychopath respond to the gospel? Because really becoming a Christian is recognizing our guilt. So you, as somebody who got saved in prison, you haven't felt remorse or guilt, you would say, but at the same time, you recognize your guilt. Can you help explain what that looks like a little bit? Yeah, a couple things. And uh, I've actually heard from Christians over the years who have seen me in my testimony say, uh, you're not really saved, you're not really a Christian, you guys are sitting here giving this testimony, talking about all these horrible things you've done, and you're not weeping over it, you're showing, you're showing no emotional reaction to anything you're talking about. And it's important to keep in mind that Guilt, guilt feelings, you know, like there's a moral law, right and wrong, you break the moral law, 
feel guilty, but you still are guilty. Somebody commits a crime, they might not feel guilty, but they can still be accused of their guilt. And what I feel like you have experienced in your life is a recognition of your guilt, absent of the feeling. Let's face it, if we didn't have the feeling of guilt to help sanctify us and tame us, how much would we want to get away with? And here's a man who's pursuing the heart of God faithfully and sharing the gospel. And I just thank you for that because I think that the challenge that you would have to live faithfully, absent of that grace of feeling our wrongdoing, I would say that and one of the things I like about the way you put it is it fits something that you said, Russ, about how it's a tool. Like that, David, what's David Wood is the person, the psychopathic person on the left. And he, he tried to kill his own father and he felt no remorse. Okay, this is, it's studies, it's believed that about 50% of serial killers are psychopaths, and not 50% of psychopaths become serial killers. That's a different statistic. We're just saying of those, who become serial killers, about 50% are serial killers, or are psychopaths. And that tells you something about how the conscience, the emotional aspect, is a useful tool, right? So it's a useful tool. You can go too far with this. One is to make too little of the conscience and say, just ignore it. You can just do, you know, focus on the knowledge aspect, ignore the tool part of it. The other part is to go too far and say, well, if your conscience, if you feel wrong about it, that automatically makes you wrong, right? That would be going too far. Those, those are two extremes in that case. Any questions or comments about any of that? Correct. And, and likewise, if we feel right about something, that doesn't inherently make it right. Because um, most of us are not going to make a choice that doesn't feel right to us. Usually we're going to do something because we, we want it, we like it, we, we think it's what's good right now. Um, and so we need to also make sure that it's, it's being trained to say what we believe is right is not inherently what God insists is right. Yeah, and that's the flip side of it. This is exactly where it's not good. The person who tells you that, hey, this meat was sacrificed to idols, they likely have no, no emotional qualms about it, right? That's the issue. And actually, it, there was something where there was a podcast in 2014. Actually, I, Josh listened to it recently, about a, about a week and a half ago. He and I were, were talking about it, and he listened to it too. And it was about a conference that was to try to get people in the church to be, I tried to the phrase they used, to be gay affirming, meaning to accept same-sex marriage in the church. But there are people who claim to be, they claim to be Christians, and they put this conference together. And in that conference, they actually sent some, there was somebody who went there who did not agree with them on same-sex marriage. He held Jesus' view on same-sex marriage. But he went there anyways just to see what the arguments they used. And it's interesting, they use a two-part method in it. He says, one, they try to weaken your respect for Scripture. They try to just raise enough questions where you have some doubts about it. That's the first one. And then step two, they switch away to an emotional argument. And notice what they didn't do. They didn't try to say, I'm going to weaken your view of a certain view of Scripture and then show you a better view of Scripture. That's not what happened. And they straight up admit this. In that podcast, one of the, people, the guy who went to this thing, he said they were told this that only, they only knew of one person who changed their view on same-sex marriage to have anything to do with the, with the Bible, with Scripture. So they said you have to go that second approach to get people to flip away to it. And, but, it, you know, it's a two-edged sword. I remember it was Amy Hall wrote this 
she's a, just a, well, it doesn't matter. She wrote this article, and she made a, a really good point. And she said, I was shocked, she said, about the number of people who were changing their view on same-sex marriage that had, that were, that claimed to be Christians, who had, and their reasons had nothing to do with scripture. And then she said, I remembered something. She said, I remembered that some people said that you Christians only believe your, your views against same-sex marriage are affected by the fact that you're just bigots. It's just because you don't like it. And then she said, I realized that they were actually partially right. right? Some people held their views against same-sex activity only because they didn't like it. If you hold your views for emotional reasons, then an emotional appeal can change your view. Whereas if you hold your reasons for biblical reasons, only a biblical argument can change your view. And that was her point. So that's kind of that flip side where being too reliant on the emotional aspect can actually open us up to, to risk. Josh. Exactly. Good point. Yeah, and I think that having that distinction is helpful because there are, some, there are certain scenarios where you come up with these, what you know to be true and what you feel to be true may not be aligned, right? So let me, let me give you one. And Josh actually came up with even a better one than the one I had. Let's say that you, you could have a case where, well, so you'll say you have a Christian who has been sinning. You have another Christian who sees this person who says, I know this Christian has been sinning. So that second Christian goes to the first one and corrects them. But when they correct them, the person they talk to just takes it really hard for whatever reason. And so the first Christian who did the correction, they feel a little bit guilty because it, it felt like it hurt that Christian. Was it wrong for them to do that? Well, no. Right? That wouldn't make any sense. They, they knew they had to do it, but they feel a little conflicted about it. That doesn't mean they're violating their conscience. It just means they just felt conflicted about it. They felt guilty that it kind of hurt this person. It kind of had to be done. Right? Josh, I, I mentioned this to Josh at, on Wednesday, and he had a better example, I thought, of a conflicted conscience like this. I don't know if you might, don't mind sharing that, if that's okay. He has been forgiven of that sin, 
But he's so filled with guilt still that he's not sure that God has truly forgiven him. So his confidence, his conscience is still hanging with guilt, that he's still filled with sin, that he still doesn't have forgiveness. And so his confidence in God's ability to forgive, now I don't know that he would word it that way, but that, that's the reality. His confidence in God's ability to forgive the way that he forgives is shaken. Yeah, and what was the, the quote that he was given? Because you, I like the way you put it. Yeah, he, he went with me to Now, what I like about that is because there's a, he, the advice given him resolves the conflict. You have him saying, my heart condemns me. And he's saying, okay, stop looking at your heart. And if someone says, look at God. Okay, God is above your heart. So who are you to say? You're not the judge, actually. He's the judge. And the path, there's a passage, and it doesn't use the word conscience in there. But it's the same idea, and it's 1 John chapter 3, verse 20, which John talks about that, how when your, your heart may condemn you, but God is above your heart, and God has all knowledge. And you see the aspect of knowledge there is the way you resolve this, and also God is bigger than your heart. So I think that makes a lot of sense. What other questions or comments do I have? agree on this and this is this is what's challenging about this is that we have people who feel conflicted oh my like this man and this is this is going to affect his life i mean it's not good for you i actually looked it up and, and john carlin you you made a mention of this on wednesday about how it's not good to be in a conflicted state when it comes to your conscience this is where we we don't want to make too little of it either we need to resolve that conflict because it's not good for you. And I looked at up some papers in the American Psychology Association. They said it's not good for you. But a lot of times, that's not God talking. That's Satan talking. Yes, Ryan. I think your illustration about uh, approaching someone and not feeling guilty about that is helpful. Uh, I think we sometimes take these, uh, these passages about not offending your conscience and um, can treat our conscience uh, you know, on the same level as scripture um, and not really be willing to train our conscience to align with scripture. Um, these passages about um, you know, not offending, I think, are much more, seem to be much more about uh, not pushing or views with other people who don't, uh, don't see things exactly the same way you are. But as far as your conscience goes, like, if you see a, a mismatch between scripture as you understand it and your conscience, Training conscience, you need to, um, you can say, you know, get outside your comfort zone in that way. Uh, you 
Yeah, I like the way you put it, get out of your comfort zone, because I think that's, that's a good way to put it, because I think that's really what's going on here. Well, some of the things that God asks you to do are not very comfortable either, right? And I, so I actually made a list of, of examples where I suspect in the New Testament people were not, they were out of their comfort zone, and they had actually felt that their, their conscience was violated in a certain sense. I'm using the English word here, the emotional aspect. And... It's kind of humorous when you look them up. I can't find it in my sheet, but it's okay. I remember some of them. Remember in John chapter 4, Jesus talks to a woman who's had multiple men, and she's a Samaritan. The apostles come back, and they're all weird about it. It's a little bit humorous what actually happens after that, because they're all weird about it, and they're like, why is she talking to this woman? Right? So you just imagine, the way I always portray this in my head is that they just come and just awkwardly standing quietly, like, if this is what's going on. And they even, it says in there something to the effect of, like, why are you talking to this woman? But like, I'm thinking maybe she started a conversation. Why did Jesus start a conversation with her? But it's going to get awkwarder for them. Because it says in there that the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. Where this was their view on it, was that you just keep away from the unholy. Well, then... Jesus stays with them when the apostles, they stay with the Samaritans. That had to be out of their comfort zone. That had to feel weird to them. Okay, think about how Paul, Paul going to the Gentiles, Paul was a Jew of Jews, and that had, that had to feel a little bit weird. Think about Peter. Right? Peter, in Galatians 2, he withdrew himself, and he shouldn't have done that, but it could be partially he just felt more comfortable being with his Jewish brethren than he did with the Gentile ones. So he had to be out of his comfort zone. But he knew that it was right. And he could probably come up with some other ones as well. John. personality aspect, you really have to check that and understand it. There are people in this room who are diagnosed OCD. And so you have to keep that in mind because 
that can you can cause people to dwell on an issue too much and then miss the bigger picture or just make an issue about something that's not an issue. And there's other people who have have a I'll say weak conscience. I don't think that's how Paul's using it. Weak conscientiousness where it just doesn't affect him as much. Yes. So I wonder sometimes if we don't make a good distinction between conscience and conviction. Because I think sometimes in our minds we think, well, this person does this because they want to violate their conscience, but in reality they know that either way can be fine. But do they really? Or are they convicted that this is the way? And you know, I'll just bring this up here. We've got a few people that, but like with the women's head covering, right? I mean, some, I might look at that as a matter of conscience, or I might think, well, this woman does this because she doesn't go by her conscience. When in reality, there's a good chance she does it because she feels that if she doesn't do it, it is truly sin. And so I'm not so sure that sometimes we don't say that, we don't consider the two as equal, but they're really totally different. Yeah, this is, this is a good point, especially with the head covering, because originally the, the lesson I want to cover is the, which we mostly aren't covering, but we're kind of covering some idea, was about how the one on, the topical lesson on, what's it called? Neither take nor cause offense. And I, I designed that lesson in the case of, and I don't think this is true here, but in the case of a church where they can't talk about the head covering without, without getting people very angry. Okay, I, I've, I've been in places where it was like that. And I think that's one of the things that we have to keep in mind about how when we try to make those arguments against people. I, I knew somebody who was struggling with their faithfulness. They, they eventually fell away. And she changed her view to start wearing the head covering. Now, it wasn't, that was not my view. But I was always impressed by that because I wondered after she fell away, and it fell away in a very dramatic way, unfortunately, did she ever really believe? Did she ever really have the conviction? And I thought back to that time when she was wearing the head covering, which I didn't even hold that view. And I was like, you know what? She did have the conviction. Why would she have done that unless her heart was actually convicted? So I was actually kind of impressed by that, even though I didn't hold the view, because I saw that she actually held conviction at some point. And I think we have to draw that distinction. Yes, I guess the bottom line for me personally is, or whatever makes the right decision, is this Child of God, you're clean from all of that. 
Yeah, it's funny you say that too, because I actually had a, I'd written down a bunch of scenarios to work through to try to, to draw out that distinction between that emotional aspect and the knowledge aspect. And one of them was, you have a, a Christian who has a past, and the person has, according to the state, is a former felon, and went to jail. Another Christian is disturbed by that. Their conscience, I'm using the emotional aspect here, is not comfortable with that, so they don't want to have a relationship with that Christian. What should they do? Well, they should violate their conscience. I'm putting in quotes here. Can I use the English word here? They should violate the emotion because that's wrong, right? You, like you said, who, it's kind of goes back to Josh's the advice given to men. Who are you to be, put yourself into the judge? God has judged them clear, right? So, I, yeah, I think, I think it's a good point to bring up. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought about that. That is, it is a lot like a person who, who learned the gospel in jail. You know, that's a really good point. All right. Thanks, y'all. Uh, we are, like I said, we're going to ha- handle chapter 11 uh, on Wednesday.